0: To The Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud-native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud-native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically-minded decision-maker, this podcast is for you. Viva! Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Paulettes Podcast. And today we have a special guest, Craig McCuckley. <laughs> Craig, I have the hardest time pronouncing the last name. You will correct me, but let me just quickly say, well, I'm Carly De Campos. And today we also have Duffy Cooley and Josh Rosso on the show. Say that three times fast. Craig mm-hmm. McCackley. Please help us say your last name and give us a brief introduction. You are super well-known in the Kubernetes community and inside VMware, but I'm sure there are not enough people that should know about you that know about you. So, All
1: right. I'll do a very quick intro. Hi, I'm Craig McLucky. I'm a vice president of research and development here at VMware. Prior to VMware, I spent a fair amount of time at Google where my friend Joe and I were responsible for building and shipping Google Compute Engine, which was an interesting exercise in bringing traditional enterprise virtualized workloads into the very sophisticated Google data center. We then went ahead and as our next project with Brendan Burns started Kubernetes, and that obviously worked out okay. And I was also responsible for the ideation and formation of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. I then wanted to work with you again, so we started Heptio, a little startup in the Kubernetes ecosystem. And almost precisely a year ago, we were acquired by VMware. So I'm now part of the VMware company, and I'm working on our broader strategy around cloud-native apps under the brand Tanzu.
0: Let me start off with a question. I think it is going to be my go-to first question for every guest that we have on the show. Some people are really well-versed in the cloud-native technologies and Kubernetes, and some people are completely not. And some people are asking really good questions out there. And I try to tune in because I'm one of those people who are still learning. So my question for you is, what do you think people are asking that they're not asking in the right frame, that you wish they would be asking that question in a different way?
1: It's a very interesting question. I don't think there's any bad questions in the world. But one question I encounter a fair bit is, hey, I've heard about this Kubernetes thing, and I want one. I'm not sure it's see the right question, right? Kubernetes is the powerful technology. I definitely think we're in the sort of peak hype phase of the project. There's a set of opportunities that Kubernetes really brings a much more robust ability to manage. It abstracts away infrastructure. There's some very powerful things. But to be able to be really successful with Kubernetes project, there's a number of additional ingredients that really need to be thought through. You know, the questions that ought to be asked are... I understand the utility of Kubernetes, and I believe that it would bring value to my organization. But do I have the skills and capabilities necessary to stand up and run a successful Kubernetes program? That's something to really think about. It's not just about the nature of the technology, but it really brings in a lot of new concepts that challenge organizations. When you think about applications that exist in Kubernetes, there's challenges with observability. When you think about the mechanics of delivering into a containerized sort of environment, There's a lot of do's and don'ts that make a ton of sense there. And and a lot of organizations I work with are excited about the technology, but they don't necessarily have the depth of understanding of where it's best used and then how to operate it. So the second addendum to that is, okay, I'm able to deploy Kubernetes, but what happens the next day? You know, what happens when I need to update it, when I need to maintain it? What happens when I discover that I need not one Kubernetes cluster or even 10 Kubernetes clusters, but 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, which is always starting to see out there in the industry? Have I taken the right first step on that journey to set me up for success in the long term? And so I do think there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity and excitement around the technology, but I also think it's something that organizations really need to look at is not just about deploying a platform technology, but introducing the necessary skills that are necessary to operate and maintain it and the supporting technologies that are necessary to get the workloads onto it in a sustainable way. You've
2: raised a number of assumptions around how people think about it, I think, which are interesting. Even just starting with the idea of the packaging problem that represents containerization is a reasonable start. But so infrequently, do we describe like the context of the problems that all of the problems that Kubernetes solves that frequently, I think, people
3: just get way ahead of themselves. It's a pretty good description. So maybe in the similar vein, Craig, you had mentioned all the pieces that go into running Kubernetes successfully. You have to bolt some things on maybe for security or do some things to ensure observability is adequate. And it seems like the ecosystem has taken notice of all those needs and has built a million projects and products around that space. And I'm curious of your thoughts on that because it's like, in one way, it's great because it shows it's really healthy and thriving. In another way, it causes a lot of fragmentation and confusion for people who are thinking whether they can or cannot run Q because there's so many options out there to accomplish those kind of things. So I was just curious of your general thoughts on that and where it's headed.
1: It's fascinating to see the sort of burgeoning ecosystem around Kubernetes. And I think it's heartening because you know, if you think at the very highest level, the world was going to go one of two ways with the introduction of the Hyperscale public cloud it's either going to lead us into a world which feels like the mainframe era again, you know, where no one ever got five of buying Amazon in this case or buying Microsoft, whatever the case, whoever sort of emerges over time as the, as the dominant force. But it also represents some challenges where you have these vertically integrated closed systems. Innovation becomes prohibitively difficult. It's hard to innovate in a closed system because you're innovating you know, only for organizations that have already taken that dependency. And, and I think Kubernetes has opened it up, not just in terms of the world of applications that can run Kubernetes, but also this burgeoning ecosystem of supporting technologies that can create value. There's a reason why startups are building around Kubernetes. There's a reason they're looking to solve these problems. I do think we'll see a continued period of consolidation. You're not a cool mainstream enterprise software provider if you don't have a Kubernetes story today. And I think we'll start to see continued focus and consolidation around a set of the larger organizations that are operating the space. It's not accidental that, you know, Heptio is a part of VMware at this point. You know, when I looked at the ecosystem, it was pretty clear we needed a bigger boat to fully materialize the value of of Kubernetes, and I'm pleased to be part of this organization. So I do think you'll start to see a variety of different vendors emerging with, you know, pretty clear, well-defined opinions and relatively turnkey solutions that address the gamut of capabilities of what an organization needs to get into Kubernetes. You know, one of the things that delights me about Kubernetes is that if you are a sophisticated organization that is self-identifying as a software company, and this is sort of manifest in you know the internet space, if you're running a sort of hyperscale internet service, you are kind of by definition a, a software company. And you probably have the skills on hand to make great choices around what projects, you know, follow the communities, identify when things are reaching point of critical mass. You're running in a space where your system is relatively homogenous. You know, you don't have just the sort of massive gamut of workloads a lot of the mainstream enterprise organizations have. So I think there's going to be different approaches to the ecosystem depending on which organization is looking at the problem space. I do think this is prohibitively challenging for a lot of organizations that are not resourced at the level of a hyperscale internet company from a technology perspective, where their day job isn't running a production service for millions or billions of users. And I do think in situations like that, it makes a tremendous amount of sense to identify and work with someone you trust in the ecosystem that can help you just navigate the wild map that is the, the Kubernetes landscape that can participate in a number of these emerging communities that has the ability to put their thumb on a scale where necessary to make sure that things converge. I think it's situational. I think the lovely thing about Kubernetes is that it does give organizations a chance to cut their teeth without having to dig into like a, a deep procurement cycle with a major vendor. So we see a lot of self-service Kubernetes projects getting initiated. But at some point, almost inevitably, people need a little bit more help. And that's the role of a lot of these vendors. And the thing that I truly hope that I'm personally committed to is that as we start to see the convergence on this ecosystem, as we start to see the pieces falling into place, that we retain an emphasis on the value of community, that we also sort of avoid the balkanization and fragmentation, which sometimes comes out of these types of systems. You know, we are so much better served as a software community if we can preserve consistency from environment to environment. The reality is, you know, as you start looking at large organizations, enterprises that are consuming Kubernetes, it's almost inevitable that they're going to be consuming Kubernetes from a number of different sources, you know, whether the sources are cloud provider delivered Kubernetes services or whether they're hand-roll Kubernetes clusters that a dedicated centralized IT team is delivering or whether it's you know, vendor-provided Kubernetes. There's going to be a lot of different flavors and variants on it. And I think working within the community, not as kingmakers, but as concerned citizens that are looking to make sure that there's very high levels of consistency from offering to offering means that our customers are going to be better served. We're right now in a time where this technology is burgeoning. It's highly scrutinized, but it's not necessarily very widely deployed. And so I think it's important to just keep an eye on that sort of community centricity, stay as as true to upstream as possible. Avoid balkanization, and I think everyone will benefit from that.
2: Makes sense. One of the things I took away from my year, I was just looking at kind of back at my year and learning, consolidating my thoughts on what has happened. One of the big takeaways for me in my customer engagements this year was that a number of customers outright came out explicitly and said, Our success as a company is not going to be measured by our ability to operate Kubernetes, which is true and obvious. But at the same time, like, I think that that's a really interesting. Moment of awareness for a lot of the people that I work with out there in the field, you know, where they realized, you know what, like Kubernetes may be the next best thing. It may be an incredible technology, but fundamentally, it's not going to be the measure by which we are graded success, right? It's going to be what we do on top of that that is more interesting. And so I think that your point about that ecosystem is large enough that people will be consuming Kubernetes from multiple sources is sort of amplified by that, right? Because people are going to look for that easy button as an inroad. They're going to look for some way to get the Kubernetes thing so that they can actually start exploring what will happen on top of it as their primary goal rather than how to get Kubernetes from an operational perspective or even understand the care and feeding of it because they don't see that as the primary measure
1: of success, you know? It's entirely true. When I think about enterprise software, There's sort of these three pieces of it. You know, the first piece is the sort of crystalline core of of enterprise software that's consistent from enterprise to enterprise to enterprise. It's purchased from primary vendors or it's, it's built by open source communities. And it represents, you know, a significant basis for everything. There's the sort of peripheral, the sort of sea of applications that exist around that enterprise is built that are entirely unique to their environment and that are relatively fluid. And then there's this weird sort of interstitial layer, which is the integration glue that exists between that crystalline core and those applications and operating practices that enterprises create. And so, I think from my side, we benefit if that crystalline core is as large as possible, you know, so that enterprises don't have to rely on bespoke integration practices as much as possible. But we also need to make allowances for the idea that that interstitial layer between the sort of core of, of a technology like Kubernetes and the applications may be modular or sort of extended by a variety of different vendors. You know, if you're operating in a specific space, like the telco space, your problems are going to be unique to telco, but they're going to be shared by every other telco provider. And one of the beautiful things about Kubernetes is it is sufficiently modular. It is a pretty well thought through system. So I think we will start to see a lot of specialization in terms of those integration pieces, a lot of specialization in terms of how Kubernetes is fit to a specific area. And I think that represents a powerful opportunity for the community to continue to evolve. But I also think it means that we, as contributors to the project, need to make allowances for that. We can't hold opinion to the point where it precludes massive, significant value for organizations as they look at modularizing and extending the platform.
0: What is your opinion on people making specialized Kubernetes operating systems? For example, we're talking about Telcos. I think there is a Kubernetes OSS. For specifically for telcos, they strip away things that that kind of industry doesn't need. What are the trade-offs that you see?
1: It's almost inevitable that you're going to start to see specialized operating system distributions that are tailored to container-based workloads. I think you know as you start looking at like the telco space with network function virtualization, Kubernetes promises to be something that we never really saw before. At the end of the day, Telcos you know, very broadly deployed Open, OpenStack as this primary substrate for network function virtualization. But at the end of the day, they ended up not just deploying one rendition of OpenStack, but in many cases, you know, three, four, five, depending on what functions they wanted to run. And There wasn't a sufficient commonality in terms of the, the implementations. It became very sort of vendor-centric and vulcanized in many ways. And I think there's an opportunity here to work hard as a community to drive convergence around a lot of those Kubernetes constructs so that, sure, the operating system is going to be different. If you're running a NFV data plane implementation doing a lot of bit slinging, it's going to look fundamentally different to anything else in the industry, right? But that shouldn't necessarily mean that you can't use the same tools to organize, manage, and reason about the workloads. A lot of the innovations that happen above that shouldn't necessarily be tied to that. I think there's promise there. And it's going to be an amazing test for Kubernetes itself to see how well it scales into those environments. By and large, I am a fan of rendered um, down, container-optimized operating system distributions. There's a lot of utility there. But I think we also need to be practical and recognize that enterprises have got comfortable with the OS landscape that they have. And so we have to make allowances that you know, as part of containerizing and distributing your application, you, maybe you don't necessarily need to you know, fully re-qualify the underlying OS and you know, challenge a lot of the assumptions. So I think we just need to be pragmatic about it.
2: I know that's a dear topic to Josh and I, who fought that battle in the past as well. I do think it's another one of those things where it's a set of assumptions. It's fascinating to me how many different ecosystems are sort of collapsing. What do we mean not ecosystems? How many different audiences are brought together by a technology like container orchestration, that you are having that conversation with, you know what, let's just change the paradigm for operating systems, that you are having that conversation with, let's change the paradigm for observability and lifecycle stuff. Let's change the paradigm for packaging. We'll call it containers. You know what I mean? Like it's so many big changes in one idea. It's crazy. It's a little daunting
1: if you think about it, right? Like I always say, change is easiest across one dimension, right? Trying to change everything all at once across all the dimensions. Life gets really hard. I think, again, it's one of these things where Kubernetes represents a lot of value. I walk into a lot of customer accounts, and I spend a lot of time with customers. And I think based on their experiences, they sort of make one of two assumptions, right? There's a set of vendors that will come into an environment and say, hey, just run this tool against your virtual machine images and Kubernetes, right? And then they have another set of vendors that will come in and say, yeah, hey, you just need to like turn this thing into 12-factor cloud-native service mesh linked Applications driven through CI/CD and your life is magic, right? There's some cases where it makes sense, but there's some cases where it just doesn't. Hey, what uses a 24 gigabyte container? Is that really solving the problems that you have in, some, in a systematic way? At the other end of the spectrum, like there's no world in which an enterprise organization is rewriting 3,000, 5,000 applications to be cloud native from the ground up. This is not going to happen, right? So just understanding the return on investment associated with the migration into Kubernetes and understanding where it makes sense and where it doesn't is such an important part of the story.
3: On that front, and this is something Duffy and I talk to our customers about all the time, say you're sitting with someone and you're talking about potentially using Kubernetes or they're thinking about it. Are there like some key indicators that you see, Craig, as like, okay, maybe Kubernetes does have that return on investment pretty soon to justify it? Or maybe even in the reverse, like some things where you think... Okay, these people are just going to implement Kubernetes and it's going to become Shelfware. How do you qualify as an org? I might be ready to bring on something like Kubernetes. It's
1: interesting. For me, it's almost inevitably, it's as much about the human skills as anything else. I mean, the technology itself isn't rocket science. I think the sort of critical success criteria, when I start looking at an engagement, is there a cultural understanding of what Kubernetes represents, right? Kubernetes, it's not easy to use. That initial wall of YAML to the face is kind of painful for people that are, are used to different experiences. And you know, making sure that the basic skills and expectations are met is really important. I think there's definitely some sort of acid tests around workload fit. As you start looking at Kubernetes, it's an evolving ecosystem. And it's maturing pretty rapidly, but there's still areas that need a little bit more heavy lifting, right? So if you think about like, hey, I want to run a vertically scaled OLTP database on Kubernetes today. Mm, I don't know, maybe not the best choice. If the customer knows that, right, if they have enough familiarity with it, or they're willing to engage, I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense. By and large, the biggest challenge I see is not so much in the Kubernetes space. You know, it's easy enough to get to a, a basic cluster. The There's sort of two dimensions to this, day two operations. I see a lot of organizations that have worked to create scale-up programs of platform technologies. You know, before Kubernetes, there was Mesos, and there's obviously PCF that we're becoming more increasingly involved in. And organizations that have chewed on creating and deploying a standardized platform often have the operational skills, but you also need to look at like, why did that previous technology really meet your sort of criteria and do you have the skills to operate it on a day to basis? And often as not. They've worked out the day-to-operational issues, but they still haven't figured out like what it means to create a modern software supply chain. That can deliver into the kubernetes space they haven't figured out necessarily how to create the right incentive structures and experiences for the developers that are looking to build package and deliver into that environment and that's probably the, the biggest point of frustration i see with with enterprises is okay i got to kubernetes now what that question just hasn't been answered they haven't really thought through well these are the CI/CD processes like this is how you engage your cyber team to you know qualify the platform for these classes of workloads this is how you set up a container repo and run scans against it this is how you assign ttl on images so you don't just get massive repos sprawl. there's so much in the application domain that just needs to exist that i think people often trivialize and it's worth really taking the time and you know taking you know picking a couple of projects being measured in the investments making sure you have the right kind of cultural profile of teams that are engaged create that sort of celebratory moment of success make sure that the team is sort of metricing and communicating the productivity improvements etc and that really drives the adoption and engagement at the at the customer base.
0: Sounds to me like you have a book in the making.
1: Oh, I will never write a book. This just seems like a lot of work. I've watched Joe and Brendan and writing my friends write books. And like, yeah, that seems like a whole lot of work.
2: You had mentioned that you decided you wanted to work with Joe again. You formed Heptio. Heptio was I was actually there for a year. I think it was around for a bit longer than that. Obviously, I'm curious what your thoughts about that were as an experiment went. You know, if you just think about it as that part of the journey, do you think that was a success? And like, what did you learn from that whole experiment that you wished everybody knew just from a business perspective? It might have been business or it might have been running a company, any of that stuff.
1: So I'm I'm very happy with the way that Heptia went. There were a few things that sort of stood out for me as things that folks should think about if they're going to start a startup or if they want to join a startup. You know, the first and foremost, I would say, is design the culture to the problem at hand. You know, like culture isn't accidental. And I think that, you know, Heptio had a a pretty distinct and nuanced culture. And I don't want to sound self-congratulatory. I mean, as with anything, you know, a certain amount of this is work, but a lot of it's luck as well. Making sure that the cultural identity of the company is well suited to the problem at hand is just critical, right? And, you know, when I think about what Heptio embodied, it was really tailored to the specific journey that we were setting ourselves up for. You know, we were looking to be passionate advocates for Kubernetes. We were looking to walk the journey with our customers in, a, in an authentic way. We were looking to create a company that was built around sustainability. So I think the culture was good. And I encourage folks that are either thinking of starting a, a startup or looking to join one to think hard about that culture and, and how it's going to map to the, the problems that are trying to be solved. The other thing that I think really motivated me to do Heptio, and I, I think this is something that I'm really excited to continue on it with at VMware, was the opportunity to walk the journey with customers. So many startups have this massive reticence to really engage deeply in professional services. And in many ways, you know, like Google was fun. I had a blast there. You know, it's a great company to work for. You know, we were able to build out some really cool tech and do good things. But I got kind of tired of writing letters from the future. You know, it's like, hey, we have flying cars. We need interacting with the customer. They're like, I can't stop my car and get to work. It's great that you have flying cars. But right now, I just need to get in my car and drive down the block and get out and get to work, right? So walking the journey with customers is probably the most important learning from Heptio, and it's one of the things I'm kind of most proud of. That opportunity to, you know, share the pain, get involved from day one. Look at that as your most valuable apparatus to not just build your business, but also to learn what you need to build. Like having a really smart set of people that are, comfortable working directly with customers and are invested in the the success of those customers is so powerful. So if you're in the business for, you know, in the startup game, investors may be leery of building out a a significant professional services function because that's just how Silicon Valley works. But it is absolutely imperative in terms of your ability to engage with customers, particularly around nascent technologies, fill the gaps where the product doesn't exist, learn from those experiences and bring that back into the core product. It was just a huge part of what we did. And if I was ever in a situation where I had to advise you know, a startup in the sort of open source space, I'd say lean into the professional services, lean into field engineering. It's a critical way to you know, build your business, learn what customers need, walk the journey with them, and just develop a deep
0: empathy. With any new technology, there is always a concern about having enough professionals in the market who are knowledgeable in that new technology. There's always a gap for people to catch up with that. So I'm curious to know what customers or companies, prospective customers out there are thinking in terms of finding professionals to help them. Are they concerned that there's not enough professionals in the market? Are they finding that the current people who are admins and operators are having an easy time because their skills are transferable if they're going to embark on the Kubernetes journey? What are they telling you?
1: I mean, there's a huge skills shortage. This is one of the kind of primary threats to the short-term adoption of Kubernetes. I think Kubernetes will ultimately permeate enterprise organizations. I think it will become a standard for distributed systems development, you know, effectively emerging as, a, as an operating system for distributed systems as people build more natively around Kubernetes. But you know, right now, it's like the early days of Linux, where to deploy Linux, you'd have to kind of, you know, build from scratch type thing. It is definitely a challenge. For enterprise organizations, it's interesting because there's a war for talent. Like there's just this incredible appetite for Kubernetes talent. There's always that old joke around the job description for like 10 years of Kubernetes experience on a five-year project. And and that that certainly is something we see a, a lot. I take it from two sides. You know, one is recognizing that as an enterprise organization, you are not going to be able to hire this talent. Just like accept that sad truth. Like you can hire a seed crystal for it. But you really need to look at that as something that you're going to build out as an enablement function for your own consumption as you start assessing individuals that you're going to bring on in that role don't just assess for kubernetes talent assess for the ability to teach look for people that can come in and not just do but teach and enable others to do right because at the end of the day if you need like you know fifty Kubernetes at a certain level you know so does your competitor and all of your other competitors so does every other function out there there's just massive shortage of skills. So, emphasizing your own, you know, taking on the responsibility of building your own expertise, educating your own organization, finding ways to identify people that are motivated by this type of technology and creating space for them and and recognizing and rewarding their work as they build this up because it's far more practical to hire into your existing skill set and then create space so that the people that you know, have the appetite and capability to really absorb these types of disruptive technologies, can do so within the primary organization, I create the structures to support them, and then make it their job to help permeate that knowledge and information into the organization. It's just not something you can just bring in. The skills just don't exist in the broader world. And then for professionals that are interested in Kubernetes, this is definitely a field that I think will see a lot of job security for a very long time. Taking on that effort, it's just well worth, the, well worth the journey. And then I'd say the other piece of this is, you know for vendors like VMware, our job can't be just delivering skills and delivering technology. We need to think about our role as enablers in the ecosystem, as folks that are helping not just you know, build up our own expertise of Kubernetes that we can represent to customers, but you know we're well served by our customers developing their own expertise. It's not a threat to us it actually enables them to consume the technologies that we provide. So focusing on that enablement you know, through our systems integration partners and system, uh, the SISO kind of community, really focusing on enablement for our customers and education programs and the things that they need to start building up that capacity internally is
3: going to serve us all well. Something going back to maybe the Heptio conversation, I'm super interested in this. Being a very open source oriented company, and VMware is of course this true as well, we have to engage with large groups of humans from all different kinds of companies. And we have to do that while building and shipping product to some degree. So where I'm going with this is like, and I remember back in the Heptio days, there was something with dynamic audit logging that we were struggling with, right? And we needed it for some project we were working on, but we needed to get consensus and a design approved at like a bigger community level. And I do know to some degree that did limit our ability to ship quickly. So you probably know where I'm going with this. When you're working on projects or product, how do you balance, you know, making sure the whole community is coming along with you? but also making sure that you can actually ship something.
1: (laughs) Dr. Hawkins, back to that sort of catchphrase that Tim Sinclair always uses, like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think, as with almost everything in the world, these things are situational, right? There are situations where it is so critical that you bring the community along with you, that you don't find yourself carrying the load for something by yourself, that you just have to accept and absorb that it's going to be pushing string. Like working with an engaged community necessitates consensus, necessitates buy-in, not just from you but from potential competitors, the people that you're working with, and you know recognizing that you know they'll be doing their own sort of mental calculus around whether this advantages them or not and and, and whatnot. But but hopefully you know I think certainly in the Kubernetes community, there's this is general recognition that making the underlying technology accessible, making it ubiquitous, making it intrinsically supportable, profits everyone. So I think there's a couple of things I, I look at. Make the decision pretty early on as to whether this is something you want to kind of you know spark off and, and sort of stride off on your own and innovate around, or whether it's something that's critical to bring the community along with you around. And like I'll give you two examples of this, right? You know, one example was the work we did around technologies like Valero, which is a backup restore product. There was an urgent and critical need to provide a sustainable way to back up and recover Kubernetes. And so we didn't have the time to do this through Kubernetes, but also it didn't necessarily matter because everything we were doing was built as an addendum to Kubernetes. That project created a lot of value and we've donated it to an open source project, anyone can use it. But we took on the commitment to drive the development ourselves as much as we needed to because we had to push very quickly in that space. Whereas if you look at the work that we're doing around things like cluster API and the sort of broader provisioning of Kubernetes, it's so important that the ecosystem avoids the tragedy of the commons around things like lifecycle management. It's so important that we as a community converge on a consistent way to reason about the deployment, upgrade, and scaling of Kubernetes clusters for any single vendor to try to do that by themselves. They're going to take on the responsibility of dealing with not just one or two environments. If you're a hyperscale cloud provider, one environment, you can do that. But we think about doing that for, in our case, hey, we need to deploy into vSphere, not just what's coming next, but also earlier versions of vSphere. We need to be able to deploy into you know, all of the hyperscalers. We need to deploy into some of the emerging cloud providers. We need to start reasoning about edge. We need to start thinking about all of this. We're a big company and we have a lot of engineers, but you're going to get stretched very thin very quickly if you try to chew that one off by yourself. So I think a lot of it's situational. I think there's situations where it does pay for organizations to kind of innovate, You know, charge off in a new direction, run an experiment, see if it sticks. Over time, open that up to the community as it makes sense. The thing that I think is most important is that you just wear your heart on your sleeve the worst thing you can do is to present a charter that, hey, we're doing this you know, as a community-centric open project with open design, open community, open source, and then change your mind later because that just creates drama. So I think it's situational. Pick the path that makes sense for the problem at hand. Figure out you know, how long your customers can wait for something. Sometimes you can bring things back to the community. It's a very open and accepting community. You can look at it as an experiment, and if it makes sense in that experimental form factor, you know, present a cap back to the Kubernetes community and see if you can kind of get it back in. But in some cases, it just makes sense to, you know, work within the, the structure and, and constraints of the community and just accept that, you know, great things that from a community angle take a lot
0: of time. And I think, too, one additional thing that I don't think was mentioned is that if a project grows too big, you can always break it off. I mean, Kubernetes is such a great example of that. Break it off into separate components, break it off into separate governance groups, And then parts can move at different speeds.
1: Yeah, and there's all kinds of options. And so the heart of it is no one rule, right? It's entirely situational. Like, what are you trying to accomplish on what horizon? I acknowledge and accept that the evolution of the core of Kubernetes is slowing, as it should. It's a signal that the project's maturing. If you cannot deliver value along the timeline that your business or your customers can absorb, then maybe it makes sense to do something on the outside. Just wear your heart on your sleeve and make sure your customers and your partners know what you're doing.
2: One of your earlier points about how do com- I mean, I think Josh's question was around how do companies attract talent? You raise a good point, And I think that there's some relation to this particular topic because frequently I've seen companies find some success by making room for open source or upstream engineers to focus on the Kubernetes piece and to help drive that adoption internally. So if you're going to adopt something like a Kubernetes Strategy as part of a larger company goal, if you can actually make room within your organization to bring people who are, or to support people who want to focus on that upstream, I think that you get a lot of ancillary benefits from that, including it makes it easier to adopt that technology and understand and actually have some more skin in the game around where the open source project itself is going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the lovely things about the Kubernetes community is this idea of your position is earned, not granted, right? The way that you earn influence and leadership and basically the goodwill of of everyone else in the community is by chopping wood, carrying water, doing the things that are good for the community. And over time, you know, any organization, any human being can become influential and and lead based on the merits of, of their contributions. It's important that vendors think about that. At the same time, I have a hard time taking exception with practically any use of open source. At the end of the day, open source by its nature is a leap of faith. You're making that technology accessible. If someone else can take it, operationalize it well and and deliver value for organizations, that's part of your contract. And that's what you absorb as a vendor when you start the thing. So, you know, people shouldn't feel like they have to, but if you want to influence and lead, you do need to, you know, participate in these communities in an open way.
2: When you were helping form the CNCF and, and some of those projects, did you foresee that being like a driving goal for people—not just vendors, but also like consumers of the technologies associated with those foundations?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. When I was starting the CNCF, I can speak from the position of where I was inside Google. Like, I was highly motivated by the success of Kubernetes, and not just personally motivated because it was a project that I was working on. Like, I was motivated to see it emerge as a standard for distributed systems development that abstracted away the infrastructure provider. I'm not ashamed of it. It was entirely self-serving. If you looked at Google's market position at the time, if you looked at where we were as a hyperscale cloud provider, instituting something that enabled the intrinsic mobility of workloads and could you know, shuffle around the cards on the deck, so to speak, so that more of them end up on the Google side was just smart. I also felt very privileged that that was our position because we didn't necessarily have to create artificial structures or constraints around the controls of the, of the system because the process of getting something to become ubiquitous, there's a natural path if you approach it as a single provider. And I'm not saying Google couldn't have succeeded with Kubernetes as a single provider, but if Red Hat and IBM and Microsoft and Amazon had all piled onto something else, it's less obvious, right? It's less obvious that, that Kubernetes would have got as far as it, as it did. So as I was setting up CNCF, I was highly motivated by preserving the neutrality, creating structures that separated the various sort of forms of government. I always joke that at the time of the you know, creating CNCF, I was motivated by the the way the US constitution is structured, where you have these sort of different checks and balances. So I wanted to have something that would separate vendor interests from, you know, things that are maintaining taste on the, the discrete project, that sort of architectural integrity. And maintain separation from customer segment so that you'd create this sort of natural self-balancing system. It was definitely in my thinking, and I think it worked out pretty well. Certainly not perfect, but it did lead down a path which I think has supported the success of the project to, to a fair bit.
2: So we've talked a lot about Kubernetes. I'm curious, do you have some thoughts,
1: Kalisha?
0: Actually, I know you have a question about MicroLift. I was very interested in exploring oh.
1: It's an interesting pattern that I see out there in the industry, and this, this manifests in a lot of different ways, right? When you think about the process of bringing applications and workloads into Kubernetes, there's this sort of predispositional bias towards, hey, I've got this monolithic application. It's vertically scaled. I'm having a hard time with the sort of team structure. So I'm going to start chewing it up into a set of microservices that I can then manage discreetly and ideally evolve on a separate cadence. And this is an example of a real customer situation where, you know, someone said, hey, I've just broken this this monolith down into 27 microservices. And so I started asking a couple of questions. And the first one was, when you have to update those 27, if you want to update one of those, how many do you have to touch? And the answer was 27. I was like, huh, you just created a microlith. It's like a monolith, except it's just harder to live with. You've taken a packaging problem and turned it into a massively complicated orchestration problem. I always use that jokingly, but there's something real there, which is there's a lot of secondary things you need to think through as you start progressing down this cloud native journey. You know, in the case of like microservice development, it's one thing to have API separated microservices. That's easy enough to institute. But instituting the organization controls around an API versioning strategy so that you can start to establish, you know, stable APIs with consistent schema and you know, being able to sort of manage the dependencies to consuming teams it requires a level of sophistication that a lot of organizations haven't necessarily thought through. So it's very easy to just sort of get caught up in the hype without necessarily thinking through, you know, what happens downstream. And it's funny, I, I see the same thing in functions, right? So interact with organizations and they're like, wow, you know, we took this thing that was running in a container and we turned it into 15 different functions. I'm like, huh, okay. I can see where it's going. And then you start asking questions like, well, do you have any challenges with state coherency? And they're like, yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. But you know, because these things are a little bit less transactionally coherent, we have to write state watches. So we try to sort of watermark state and watch this thing. I'm like, you're building a distributed transaction coordinator on your free time. Like, is this really the best use of your resources, right? So it really gets back to that idea that, you know, there's a different tool for a different job. Sometimes the tool is a virtual machine. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the tool is a bare metal deployment. If you're building a quantitative trading application that's microsecond latency sensitive, you probably don't want a hypervisor there. Sometimes a VM is is the natural destination and there's no reason to move from a VM. Sometimes it's a container. Sometimes you want to start looking at that container and just modularizing it so you can run a, a set of things next to each other in the same process space. Sometimes you're going to want to put APIs between those things and and separate them out into separate containers. There's an ROI, there's a cost and there's a benefit associated with each of those transitions. And more importantly, there's a set of skills that you have to have as you start looking at that continuum and making sure that you're making good choices and not being wise about it.
0: That is a very good observation. Design is such an important part of software development. I wonder if Kubernetes helps mask these design problems, for example, the ones you were mentioning, or does Kubernetes sort of Surfaces them even more.
1: It's an interesting philosophical question. Kubernetes certainly masks some problems. I ran into an early. This was like years ago. I ran into an early customer who confided in me he's like, I think we're writing worse code now. I was like, well, what do you mean? He was like, well, used to be when we went out of memory on something, we get page. Now we've set up so we go and it just uh, restarts the container and everything continues. So there's no real incentive for the engineers to actually go back and deal with the underlying issues and root cause it because the system's just more intensi- intrinsically robust and self healing by nature. And I think there's definitely some problems that Kubernetes will compound. You know, if you're very sloppy with your dependencies and if you create a really large, you know, vertically scaled monolith that's running on a VM today. Putting it in a container is probably strictly going to make your life worse. You know, just be respectful of that. But at the same time, you know, I do think that the discipline associated with transition to Kubernetes, if you walk a little bit further along, if you start thinking about the fact that you're not running a lot of imperative processes during a production, you know, push where deploying a container is effectively a bin copy with some, you know, minimal post deployment configuration changes that happen. Like it sort of leads you onto a much happier path naturally. So I think it can mask some issues, but by and large. The types of systems you end up building are going to be more intrinsically operationally stable and scalable. But it is also worth recognizing that it's young. You are going to encounter corner cases. You know, I've run into a lot of customers that will push the envelope in a direction that was unanticipated by the community or they, they accidentally find themselves on new ground that's just unstable because the technology is relatively nascent. So just recognizing that if you're going to walk down a new path, I'm not saying don't, just recognize that it, you're probably going to encounter some stuff that that's going to take a little bit of working through.
2: We had an earlier episode about API contracts, which I think highlights some of this stuff as well, because it sort of gets into some of those sharp edges and like why some of those things are super important when you start thinking about microservices and stuff. We're coming up to the end of our time, but one of the last questions I want to ask you, we've talked a lot about Kubernetes in this episode. I'm curious what the future holds. We see a lot of really interesting things happening in the ecosystem around moving more towards serverless. There are a lot of people who are like thinking that perhaps A better line would be to move away from like infrastructure offering and just basically allow cloud providers and stuff to manage your nodes for you. We have a few shots on goal for that ourselves. So it's been really an interesting evolution over the last year in that space. I'm curious, what sort of lifetime would you ascribe to it today? Like, would you think that this is going to be the thing in the ten years? Do you think that's the thing in five years? And what do you see
1: coming that might change it? It's interesting. Well, first of all, like. I think 2018 was the largest year ever for mainframe sales. So, you know, these technologies, once they're in enterprise, they tend to be pretty durable. Like, the duty cycle of enterprise software technology is pretty long-lived. The real question is, we've seen a lot of technologies in the space emerge, you know, ascend, reach a point of critical mass, and then fade as they're disrupted by the technologies. Is Kubernetes going to be a Linux, or is Kubernetes going to be a Mesos, right? And, like, I don't... I mean, I don't, I don't claim to know the answer. My belief, and I think this is probably true, is that it's it's more like a Linux. When you think about the heart of what Kubernetes is doing is it's just providing a better way to build and organize distributed systems. I'm sure that the code will evolve rapidly. I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of, you know, continued innovation and enhancements. But when you start thinking about the fact that, you know, what Kubernetes has really done is brought controller reconciler based management to distributed systems developers everywhere. And when you think about the fact that pretty much every system these days is distributed by nature, you really need something that supports that model. So I think we will see Kubernetes sticking, we'll see it become richer, we'll start to see it becoming more applicable for a lot of things that were historically just running in VMs. They may well continue to run in VMs and just be managed by Kubernetes. I don't have an opinion about how to reason about the underlying OS and virtualization structure. The thing I do have an opinion about is it just makes a ton of sense to be able to use a declarative framework, use a set of well-structured controllers and reconcilers to drive your world into a non-desired state. I think that pattern will be, you know, it's been quite successful. I think it'll be quite durable. I think we'll start to see... Organizations embrace a lot of these technologies over time. It is possible that something you know brighter, shinier, newer comes along. You know, anyone will tell you that we made enough mistakes you know during the journey, and there's stuff I think everyone regrets on the Kubernetes train. I do think it's likely to be pretty durable. I don't think it's a silver bullet like nothing is. Right? It's like any of these technologies. There's always a cost and there's a benefit associated with it. The benefits are relatively well understood, but. There's going to be different tools to do different jobs. There's going to be new patterns that emerge that simplify things. Like, is Kubernetes the best framework for running functions? I don't know. Maybe, you know, like, kind of like what the Knative people are doing. But are there other more intrinsically optimal ways to do this? Maybe. I don't know. It has been interesting watching Kubernetes itself
2: evolve in that moving target. Like, some of the other technologies I've seen kind of stagnate on their one solution and then. And don't grow further. But that's definitely not what I see within this community. It's like always coming up with something new. Anyway, thank you very much for your time. That was an incredible session. Yeah, thank you. It's always fun to chat.
0: Yeah, we will definitely have you back, Craig. So, yes, we are coming up at the end. But I do want to ask if you have any thoughts that you haven't brought up or we haven't brought up that you'd like to share with the audience of this podcast.
1: I guess the one thing that was going through my head earlier and say, which is, as you look at these technologies, there's sort of these two duty cycles. There's the hype duty cycle, where the technology ascends in awareness and everyone looks at it as in answer to all the everythings. And then there's the readiness duty cycle, which is sometimes offset. You know, I do think we're certainly peak hype right now in Kubernetes, if you attended KubeCon. I do think there's perhaps a gap between... The promise and the reality, you know, for a lot of organizations, you know, it's always just counsel, caution, and just be judicious about how you approach this. It's a very powerful technology and I see a very bright future for it. Thanks for your time.
0: No, really. Thank you so much. It's so refreshing to hear from you. You have great thoughts. And with that, thank you very much. We'll see you next week.
2: Thanks, everybody. See ya. Cheers, folks.
0: Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at The Podlets and on the podlets.io website. That is The Podlets all where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing.